What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Episode 25, we are going to be doing a director spotlight on Wes Anderson. We chose Wes not only because he's a truly amazing filmmaker, but also because he's so unique. No one makes movies like Wes, and we think it's important to establish directors like Wes on this channel, on this show, to let you know that we're going to cover every every kind of director, every kind of filmmaker, genre, movie because we love all movies yeah wes's movies don't make the most money in the world but wes anderson is the definition of an auteur and the fact that when you watch one of his films you know for certain that it's his because of this distinct style the stories the characters and the feeling you get when you watch them wes anderson was born in 1969 in houston texas his mother was a realtor and archaeologist, and his father worked in advertising. As a child, Wes avidly made films with a Super 8 camera starring his brothers and friends, which he still works with so many friends today. He is the middle child of three boys. His parents divorced him when he was eight years old. He worked as a projectionist while attending the University of Texas at Austin, where he met future longtime collaborator Owen Wilson and his brother Luke Wilson. He graduated with a degree in philosophy and Wes's brother, Eric, is an artist and painter and has helped develop sets and paintings for some of Wes's films. Yeah, he's actually, he painted all the suitcases in the Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, and I think he did a bunch of stuff for Royal Tenenbaums, too. Mm -hmm. A bunch of the rooms and paintings in the rooms and mm -hmm. stuff. A really cool fact about Wes is that his great-grandfather is actually Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author, who's famous for writing Tarzan and the John Carter series. I had no idea. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Now, before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content, you want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either YouTube channel or audio versions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We're growing mostly word of mouth, so please let your friends and family know about this show. Leave a five-star review, especially a written one that really helps us get seen on podcast apps by new viewers. Hit the notification bell. Leave a comment on, on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok. We also have a Patreon now, so you can check us out there and support us monthly. Our top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out, so thank you so much for everyone who's supporting us. Now, what makes Wes Anderson so unique? His style is so original and inimitable word of the day that Wes Anderson kind of operates in his own world of style and storytelling where he's really the only member of that population. His movies are true works of art aesthetically, intellectually, and narratively. I like to say that Wes Anderson movies are like adult fairy tales. They're fantastical, whimsical, fun, unusual, very unique, fascinating. It's as if the movies are set in a heightened reality that's not really our reality, the way that the characters behave and act, and the way that we we are get, we are given the shown the information, it feels like it's not our reality. You know what I mean? It kind of feels like it's an it's an alternate reality, the Wes Anderson reality. And the thing with Wes and all of his unique stories, his unique movies, is there's no wrong answer when someone asks you, what's your favorite Wes Anderson movie? There is no wrong answer. That's the beauty of his filmography. Hmm. Every movie is unique. It's They're different. Of course, you have a lot of the same themes, which we'll get into in a little bit, but still, there's no wrong answer. A main component of Wes's filmography is detail and the attention to detail in his universe, in all of his films, it's nothing short of amazing. It's borderline scientific to to an extent. He obsessively details every shot, every character, every piece of wardrobe, every set, every everything is seriously well thought out and meticulous. And 
a lot of things he'll do is he'll have a shot of a character speaking on camera, like maybe at a desk, and he just slowly zooms out, and you get to see the things on the desk or the things in the set. It's things in the room, so you get a characterization of, oh, he's got an old-time phone. He's got a projection. He's got an, a yellow list, a shelf full of yellow encyclopedias, like all sorts of attention to detail to get the characters. Yeah, Wes pretty much shoots with only wide-angle lenses, so even on a closer shot, you're still seeing a, a large part of the environment. And the, the attention to detail goes goes in hand with the uh, the production design of all of his films and especially the latter few films where he's been giving larger bu- where he's been given larger budgets and especially in terms of the color palette i think one of the things that are syn- synonymous with the Wes Anderson film the modern ones are the color palettes they're all very strong and he has a voice when it comes to the colors of his films he uses a lot of pastel colors he'll ge- he'll generally it's really fascinating if you watch some of his recent movies. He'll match the color palette of a room with one, uh, generally with a one or a few of the characters in the room, and so you'll see the wardrobe of a character matches perfectly with the with the uh, entire environment that sh- that that they're set in. And it's a really amazing way to show that the world is is uh, connected to this person and this character in that situation. Each one of Wes's films has a very specific color palette, mm-hmm. and the ones that instantly come to mind are like the muted pinks and purples in Grand Budapest Hotel, the blues, reds, and yellows in Darjeeling Limited, and the autumn colors like the yellow, brown, orange in Fantastic Mr. Fox. And the greens and pinks in, um, in Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, so every film has its own specific color palette, and the mm-hmm. color palettes for each of these films helps build the world we're entering, and they encompass everything, like you said, the wardrobe, the buildings, the sets, everything. And this makes each movie seem kind of dreamlike, makes the sets feel like a character in the film as well as the people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in terms of camera techniques, I think that Wes uses a, a few old and traditional techniques to his advantage. He, he, he mashes together a bunch of incredible techniques, um, I think most prevalent of which is the tracking dolly shot. And in any Wes Anderson movie, even the old ones, but especially more so in the latter half of his career, you'll see dozens upon dozens of wide-angle tracking shots, whether it's characters walking across an environment, whether it's the, the camera tracking across a structure or the architecture of a building or the boat in, in Life Aquatic, and he's showing you all, or the train in Darjeeling where he's showing you all the different compartments and rooms of that, of that architectural structure. He loves to do the tracking dolly shot to, sh- to expand the environment so you're not just trapped in one space in one room. He shows you everything he can. Yeah, he very seldomly edit. I mean, cuts if he has to. If it's a cut, he likes to actually just move the camera instead of cutting to a different angle or different shot. He very seldom uses different odd angles or corner angles because that's he's called a, by, it's called a whip pan if you want to say it. So a whip pan. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the uh, the camera knowledge. Yeah. So a whip pan is you have the camera on one character and then he quickly moves it to another character. So it's not like you said. It's like pretty much a cut. To a different character speaking, but it's the camera never cuts. It and just you all moves. saw that in La La Land when we're cutting between the dancing and the piano playing of Gosling yeah. and that character. So that's a very famous version of it in a big Hollywood movie. And Wes does this because he's obsessed also with flat compositions. So a lot of his shots are flat compositions. He doesn't, again, use angles very often. And even sometimes when, when characters are moving off a, off a shot, off frame, he, like you said, tracks the camera with the character moving along the, the room or along the set. So he mm-hmm. never really like leaves the set and he makes the, the camera feels like a part of the shot or a part of like a, car, a character in the scene. So what he does with his camera use is that an, a normal film or filmmaker, what they mostly want to do is try and 
provide the illusion of the film so you're not so you're never aware of the actual physical filmmaking but Wes likes to make the filmmaking a part of how he tells the story and so you can you you see the camera move in these unique ways and it brings to light that there's a camera there but it also adds to the effect of the Wes Anderson movie where you're aware of the camera movements but he wants you to be aware of it and his uh, flat compositions also create a lot of symmetry throughout the film and, and which he effectively uses it to his advantage in editing. Yeah, the symmetry of his films is really precise. Even in Bottle Rocket and in, in Rushmore, he doesn't use it as much as he does now. But you could see the early signs of his, of his use of perfect symmetry. And of his latter films, it feels like nearly every shot is perfectly symmetrical. And he has completely... He's, he's perfected the craft of creating the symmetry in his shots. He also uses uh, slow motion shots a few times in, mm. I think, every single film except for the stop motion ones. And he uses it very effectively to portray either a mood or a moment of significance to a character or multiple characters. I think some of the most famous, I think some of his most powerful uses of slow motion are Margot walking off the bus, the kids in Moonrise Kingdom walking off the campgrounds after they get married, Adrian Brody chasing the train in Darjeeling, and then the three brothers at the end chasing the train. Jason Schwartzman at the end of Rushmore when he's the, the play is over and he's and he's walking onto the stage, and then also there's the dance after that, and that's in slow motion as well. And then Bill Murray at the end of Life Aquatic, he has his film has just been shown at the festival again, and he's holding that kid on his on his shoulders and he's walking through that that beautiful alley. And also Grand Budapest, the shot of Sorcerer Ronan with, on the merry-go-round, the beautiful mm-hmm. shot of all the off the uh, lights behind her and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wes also use, likes to use layers of shots, meaning he'll have a shot of a character or multiple characters in a in a set in a room or something, but then behind them, either in a different room or in a window or in the background somewhere, he has other characters doing other things that have maybe no relation to the story or plot or scene at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're related to the scene, but it's just an added. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply effect that there's a story going on within the shot besides the main story exactly and he also likes to stack actors diagonally so they oftentimes if there's multiple characters in a shot like there, for example there's a shot in moonrise kingdom where bruce willis is front and center then there's two characters on either side of him then there's two characters on either side of them and they create a v towards the camera 
and he does a similar diagonal framing and blocking of actors like he does it in Dar- in Grand Budapest when um, Ray finds Zero and Saoirse Ronan are in that room and she in there talking. They're perfectly diagonal in a, in a diagonal line from each other. So he likes to stack his actors in a way where he creates perfect symmetry for them in an angle from the camera. Yeah, Wes also likes to create dialogue in motion, meaning he has his actors will be walking and talking a lot, which is, you know, you get a lot in real life. You don't see it too often in film mm. because a lot of directors don't really exactly use practicality of tracking shots to the effect that Wes does because it almost brings it to like a simplistic level where they care too much about cinematography to sacrifice even doing handheld shots, let alone a long tracking shot. And also he's very famous for... Uh, those overhead shots. It's called a rostrum insert shot, and it's also called, people also call it an overhead shot, but Wes uses it to such great effect, it's become like a niche of his style of characters um, using items, characters writing letters, characters reading things, and they become more prevalent in his latter films, but it's a great way to give information to the audience because Wes loves to give as much information. Oftentimes, uh, characters will create maps or they'll make plans with lists and we'll see these amazing insert shots of the overhead shot of the actual list or the map of the plan. And it's become a fun thing you know to expect in a Wes Anderson movie. And you can see how expert he's become at these shots because obviously in the more recent films he does it the quicks very effectively very quickly with the scene but in the older films like in Rushmore and Ball Rocket there's a shot of of uh, Dignan and uh, Luke Wilson's character I forget his name uh, on Anthony. the bu- Anthony on the bus going over Dignan's list and it's very slow yeah. and meticulous and then also in Rushmore Bill Murray's character giving the speech in the eulogy at the church and there's a shot of his speech and it's a very slow, long shot of it. And like now you would see Wes Anderson do that, but it'd be a lot quicker of a cut. The way he uses these insert shots now is he uses narration for them. And it's kind of, it kind of feels as though you're watching a novel visually told to you with these characters. They're either reading letters or giving information or even narrating directly to camera, facing camera, breaking the fourth wall. And it kind of feels like you're getting a visual experience of reading a novel the way that the story has narrators and oftentimes it can be different narrators in one film um, giving us information about the situations we'll we'll learn about a character and there'll be like a one minute narration exposition exposition about this character and you feel like you know this person really well because of this little narration bit yeah i definitely get that book vibe or reading a book vibe for most of his movies but like I would say that with Rushmore, it's kind of more like a play, especially mm. with like the the opening curtains uh, situation, or mm. the way he opens the film. But then Tenenbaums, which was the Tenenbaums later on, opens that book in its chapter in periodic. So then it's yeah. like more like a novel. Yeah. And speaking of characters, probably the most important part of all of his films are the characters. Yeah, they're very memorable characters. Many of his characters have similar personality traits. Um, a lot of them are very quirky. That's the common word used for Wes Anderson <laughs> characters, whimsy. Um, Wes does such a great job with the wardrobe and the sets to let you know what each character is like to the point where after just a few minutes of them on screen, you know exactly what they like. You can formulate your, their entire lives for yourself. In terms of the wardrobe, oftentimes his characters never really change their wardrobe. And if they do, it's just a different kind of color variation of their outfit. And for example, I think some of the most memorable and distinct looks in his films are Gustav's purple uniform in Grand Budapest, Chaz's red tracksuit in Royal Tenenbaums, Margot's fur coat in Royal Tenenbaums, Sam's scout outfit uniform in Moonrise Kingdom, 
and Steve Zizu's blue uniform and his red um, knitted cap in Life Aquatic, and then Max's Rushmore uniform. So these are very iconic wardrobe pieces. They're distinctive with the film itself. And a lot of his characters are innocently naive, like Dignan and Bottle Rocket and Zero and Grand Budapest. You got some secretive and reserved characters like Margo and Royal Tenenbaums, and again, the quirky scout master Randy Ward in Moonrise Kingdom. And honestly, Wes Anderson kind of looks like he could be a character in any one of his films, the way he looks. It's not like a, a bad thing. It's just his style kind of looks like he could belong in his own movies, which obviously is a testament to, like, that's the mind that's creating these movies. And it's amazing because he's such a revered filmmaker, and, and actors love his films so much that for his most recent films, he's been able to cast the best actors in the industry, and they're all taking extremely reduced salaries in order to work for him. So, for example, Moonrise Kingdom has a couple of the biggest stars in the world. Bruce Willis is one of the leads, but that movie had a budget of $6 million. So people are taking massive pay cuts just to work on his movies, so it's an amazing thing. I mean, Bill Murray's worked with them eight times. Yeah. That's insane. It's Bill Murray. He never works with anybody. Mm. Many of Wes's most iconic characters are generally obsessed with something or dedicate their lives to something, and it's an odd obsession that they're, they're obsessed with. Mm. Like Max Fisher with high school... Steve Zizou, with the extracurriculars. Steve Zizou with Aquatic Life. Uh, Mr. Fox's obsession with being a bandit. Francis in the perfect trip for his brothers. And Gustav with the hotel. So a lot of his main characters have these odd dedications. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, he has some of the best actors alive working in his films. Yet, there is uh, an intrinsic tone and style to the actors in all of his movies. And people describe it as dry or kind of muted, the way that the actors deliver dialogue. And I think that's how he's able to make his films so funny is because oftentimes these characters are dealing with very extreme and serious conflicts. And if they delivered their lines in a, an authentically emotional way, it wouldn't be funny. But since he has his actors deliver lines in a very muted and kind of like oddball kind of way, kind of emotionless when they when they when they the actors are kind of emotionless when they say their dialogue and that creates I think that creates a separation for the audience from the character and from the actual serious conflicts going on in the situation and that lack of emotion in the delivery of the lines is what creates the comedy a character can say something very serious or dramatic but the way they deliver it makes us laugh you know what I mean? Yeah, well, Wes's films are obviously full of humor and, like, silliness, but it's very dry humor. Like, mm -hmm. not everybody, I guess you could say, gets Wes Anderson movies. Some people aren't a fan of them. Some people aren't a fan of, like, that dry dialogue yeah. and the dry deliveries that his actors give. And they, they think he, his dialogue is pretentious and doesn't make any sense. And a lot of people just don't find him funny at all or his movie's good. But, I mean, it's kind of one of those things that you like it or you don't. Yeah, I, I remember... I was telling an ex about the Grand Budapest Hotel, and she was like, okay, let's watch the trailer. And then we watched the trailer, and I was cracking up the whole trailer because I think it's so funny. And she didn't make a sound, and she was just kind of confused by it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's a lot of for people. everyone. That's why his movies have grossed less than half a billion dollars total out of eight movies, nine uh, movies. Yeah. So there's a reason why Wes is kind of like just a specific audience. It's an acquired taste. It's like Mezcal. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and um, for me, every single time I watch a Wes Anderson movie, I'm like full of nostalgia. He kind of transports you back in time to either like a memory, an experience you've had, a part of your life, um, a toy you had, a song you loved, a game you played, a friend you had. He just 
makes you get in like a time machine emotionally and really connects with his stories and his characters. Yeah. And a really cool fact that I don't think a lot of people are aware of is that, like you said, he and Owen Wilson met when they were young. But Owen Wilson actually co-wrote three of Wes Anderson's films with him. He, he, they co-wrote uh, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Royal Tenenbaums. It's a really cool fact about Owen Wilson that maybe not a lot of people know about him. And another major component about Wes's films that make them brilliant are he seems to have found the perfect music collaborator or partner recently with Alexander Desplat. Mm -hmm. And Desplat clearly has been able to interpret Wes's vision for his stories, for his films, and creates like the perfect musical accompaniments to his stories and his characters. Like Grand Budapest is amazing. It's an amazing score. Moonrise Kingdom is amazing. Isle of Dogs is so cool and unique. Mm -hmm. And they really just go so well together. Yeah, they're a perfect pair. And then um, there's also this this recurring theme of dysfunctional families in Wes's films. I it starts it, I, you start to wonder like does he have troubled re relationships with his parents? Well, we talked about earlier that his parents divorced when he was eight, so I'm sure he's taken uh, elements of his dysfunctional family. And I mean, we have divorced parents. A lot of people do so. There's yeah. obviously you're dealing with lots of dysfunction if you, if that's happening even if your parents aren't divorced yeah you still have a lot of people have dysfunctional families and then they're all they're often wayward main characters who are seeking the approval of a father figure <laughs> or brothers <laughs> or brothers <laughs> uh something that i i really love that west does is he uses a lot of miniatures mm. and not just miniatures but also builds a lot of elaborate sets for shots like miniatures in terms of we actually even saw this on display was the actual Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. Beautiful miniature. They had it on display at Arclight in Hollywood when we went to go see Grand Budapest Hotel. And um, another piece, a set piece that I really adore is in Life Aquatic, the actual ship. They built like a giant replica of the ship. And what he does, and he does this in, Moon, Moon, and he does this in Moonrise Kingdom 2 where he takes this giant set and he cuts like basically the front wall off and he'll take this, the camera and do tracking shots up, down, left, and right of all the different compartments, the rooms, so you can kind of see throughout each of these sets what's going on in all the rooms, what each family member is doing, what each person of the crew is doing in their own specific areas, and it's a really fun, interesting thing to see happening with just a single shot. Yeah, and his use of miniatures has been even more heavily used lately, um, especially with Grand Budapest. Like you said, they actually built the Grand Budapest Hotel as a miniature. They built the cliffs. They actually made painted backdrops for for most of those miniature sets. So a lot of the backgrounds of the the landscapes are actually painted by hand. Um, he built the trolleys, they built the cable cars, and they built the mountain. Yeah, and we'll obviously get more into miniatures when we're talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, which are complete stop motion films with only miniatures. Yeah, in, uh, yeah, basically characters. it's all miniatures. Um, another huge theme. And a lot of Wes's films are adults versus children, where many of the adults in Wes Anderson's films act like children, and a lot of the children act like adults. This is like a perfect example in Moonrise Kingdom, where Sam and Susie are very mature for their ages, where a lot of the adults are very immature for their ages. Same thing with Steve Caesar, he's a very immature guy for his age. Also like Zero and Agatha and Grand Budapest, and especially with Rushmore with Max versus Herman, which we'll get into in a little bit, where... Max acts like an adult, and Herman acts like a child. And then two quick other things that Wes does a lot is he's very particular about his fonts, and he has a lot of... He does have a decent amount of violence in his films, but it's always done in a goofy way, like fun, like like ruffle up the little kids' fights when you don't really know how to throw a punch, so you're just kind of just scuffling and like holding each other and getting in all these like scuffles on the ground and everything and just mm -hmm. throwing fists and legs everywhere. Yeah. 
And then also his his love of film. He always shoots on film. And then also changing the kind of stock and aspect ratio and cameras that you're going to use to to create a certain kind of feel and aesthetic. Like he, he used uh, uh, different film stock for Moonrise Kingdom. I think he shot on 16 mil. And then with Grand Budapest, he used three different kinds of film and three different kinds of aspect ratios depending on what time of the, what time period was being filmed. So he likes to use film in a unique and uh, refreshing way. All right, let's get into Wes Anderson's filmography. We'll obviously spend more time on the latter films and the better movies, um, but we got to talk about all of them, of yeah. course, starting with Bottle Rocket in 1996, which was Wes Anderson's directorial debut based off a short film he had made of the same title. It stars Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. Luke Wilson plays Anthony, who had just been released from a mental hospital, only to find his wacky friend Dignan, played by Owen Wilson, is determined to begin an outrageous crime spree. They recruit their neighbor Bob, played by Robert Musgrave, and the team embarks on a road trip in search of Dignan's previous boss, Mr. Henry, played by James Kahn. But the more they learn, they realize that they are not fit to be criminals and don't know a thing about crime. Yeah, this is about a, a few guys who want to commit crimes, but they just suck at it, and they're they're in the long they're in the wrong line of work pretty much. And this film is obviously Wes's first film, and it's not as Wes Anderson in style, but you can still see hints and glimmers of the aesthetic um, tendencies that he has nowadays in the early beginning stages. They're like, they've been seeded in this in this movie and they'll blossom in later movies. It's like Scorsese's Mean Streets or Chris yeah. Nolan's Following. It's like, he actually had a $7 million budget on this film though, so he had a, a lot of money to work with. Um, it only made a million dollars total, so it had a horrible box office. It also had some of the worst test screenings that Columbia's ever had, but Touchstone loved it so much that they saw the potential and greenlit Rushmore. The test screening was so bad that um, Wes and the producers were in a theater with the test screening audience, and at, Wes was sitting in the back of the theater, and as the, as the film was playing, he, he, he noticed that nobody was laughing at any of the jokes. No one was laughing where they're supposed to be laughing, and it's a comedy. And then he noticed that people began walking out of the theater and he's just sunk in his seat and he's thinking, I'm never going to be able to make another movie in my life. These people hate me and I'm, I'm a nobody. And then they got the, the review cards back and all the, all the test screening cards they got back from the audience were, this movie sucks. What the <laughs> hell was this about? This is the worst piece of trash I've ever seen. And so they're going through dozens and dozens and dozens of these horrible reviews from the audience. And then they finally find one review of... A, a woman who wrote who wrote so much on the card that she had to use the back of the card to keep writing and it was all positive and she got every single joke that he put in there and she said it was like one of the funniest things she's ever seen in her life and he's like this is our audience <laughs> it's very small and very niche but if we find them we can make money the thing with this is like Rushmore is the movie where a lot of people they don't even know anything about Wes Anderson but they have that one fil film friend like that's like you got to see this movie you got to watch this movie Rushmore like yeah. I think you were my Rushmore guy like yeah. you got me into Wes Anderson and, mm -hmm. and Rushmore the first time I was I never heard of him never heard of the movie but I, I love the movie so much mm -hmm. and after they made the short film for this they eventually got the funding for the feature length film but the studio didn't want Owen and Luke Wilson. And I know I remember seeing an interview where Luke Wilson's like, yo, you guys just let like some real actors do this. We'll be on the next one. Let's just make some money and get this over with. But but Wes Anderson stuck to his guns with his characters and his actors. And Luke's great in it. But Owen Wilson is absolutely hysterical in this in this movie. Mm. It's like one of his best performances, even though it's like his really his first one. And this is the first Wes Anderson character where I was talking about earlier that he has an odd dedication to something weird. In this movie, it's petty crime. Yeah, Owen Wilson really shows his talents in this film and he ended up becoming a big star 
And one of my favorite scenes in this movie is early on when they plan to rob Anthony's mom's house as a test robbery to see how they do. And um, they even make a list. Anthony makes a list of the things they have to steal. And so they go and they commit the, the they rob the house. No one's home. And um, and they come back and they, they go over the thing, the items that they stole. And um, Dignum actually accidentally stole a pair of Anthony's mom's earrings. And he's like, I specifically didn't put that on the list because I didn't want you to take them. He goes to see his sister at her school and gives her the earrings and is like, can you give them back to mom for me? Yeah, and the thing with Bottle Rocket, like you said, Wes hadn't really developed his style yet. He doesn't really develop until Royal Tenenbaums for the full Wes Anderson experience, but it's still funny. Like you said, you get glimpses of his writing, the genius behind the camera. There, there are glimpses of it, um, but the, the writing's great. The characters are fun. And again, every robbery is a disaster. And my favorite <laughs> robbery is when they're robbing the library. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, <laughs> Dignan <laughs> robs a library. Yeah, who <laughs> robs a library, first of all. And Dignan's asking the guy to put the cash in a bag. He's like, put the money in a bag. And the guy grabs this like, tiny little bag. He's like, get a bigger bag. <laughs> and then the guy like calls him a punk. And then this is this weird thing that Owen Wilson, I mean, this thing that Wes Anderson does that's hilarious is like in situations that don't call for it, he creates like formality and politeness where now Dignan's like addressing this guy with respect. He's like, I'm sorry, do you have a bigger bag that like you have for encyclopedias and, and atlases? <laughs> Even though he's got a gun in his hand. Yeah. So like we said, he wasn't his fully fledged Wes Anderson style make of filmmaking in this, but he was doing things like the inserts, the whip pans. He was doing... Uh, this thing he does where he puts the camera right in front of an actor's face rather than just over the shoulder of the other actor. He's like, camera's right there in their face and they have to say their lines to the camera. And he did it in this film. And James Caan, who's been a, a revered actor for decades, this is the first time he's ever had to experience something like this. And he didn't think that Wes Anderson knew what he was doing. He's like, why is the camera like right in my face? <laughs> but uh, Wes Anderson was like, talked to him, told him what he was doing with it. So then he eventually went with it. But even James Caan was like, I've made a hundred movies and I've never seen anyone make a movie like this before. That's why Wes Anderson's Wes Anderson. Yeah. And this film has some, some solid themes. You know, it tackles that theme of people in their 20s, young adults who don't really have any direction in their life. They don't know what they want to do when they grow up. They don't even want to do know what they want to do at the moment. So same thing with these brothers, and they don't know what they want to do. And, and Dignan kind of knows what he wants to do, but he uses the petty crime obsession as as his new path and his new motivation for life. And it's, it's a, a prevalent theme in almost everybody's life when they go through that stage. Mm. Yeah, and like all of his films, there, there are deep themes hidden within the comedy of it. And if you if you if you watch enough times, you can really uh, dive into them. But yeah, if you're really just a fan of like Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom, you might not like this movie a ton. So I recommend not even starting with this one. If you're new to Wes Anderson, I would go for like Royal Tenenbaums and then go backwards or forwards from there. Yeah. And then in 1999, Wes Anderson made Rushmore, which for me was kind of like his first like real Wes Anderson style film, like developing those tracking shots, developing his his style behind the camera. He's his first time working with frequent collaborators like Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. And it's about um, when a beautiful first grade teacher arrives at a prep school. She soon attracts the attention of an ambitious teenager named Max who quickly falls in love with her. Max turns to Bill Murray, who's the father of two classmates, for advice on how to woo the teacher. He's also like a local millionaire and celebrity. However, the situation soon gets complicated when Max's new friend becomes involved with her and they compete for her. And they go to war for her attention. Yeah, it's a really funny movie about a rivalry between a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old uh, businessman. And watching 
them go hand go head to head again in this movie is pretty hysterical. Yeah, and so like where Dignan's obsessed with petty crime, Max is obsessed with high school specifically going to Rushmore, his high school. He and he's obsessed with extracurricular activities. And the ironic thing about him is He's obsessed with high school. It's like his whole life. It's what he wants to do forever. He has that weird line where, where, because Herman eventually starts to admire uh, Max for his energy and his and his passion. He's like, and he's like, what's the secret behind it? He's like, well, you just gotta find something you love and do it for the rest of your life. But you can't do high school for the rest of your life. Yeah. And ironically, Max, like you said, does all these extracurricular activities. And in his dreams, in his in his in his daydreams, he's like a hero and like a very popular person. But really, he has no friends. Nobody with, likes him. Besides that one kid who I think he's in like sixth grade. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And so the thing is, I think Max as a character is that he doesn't he doesn't want to grow up and he doesn't want to become an adult. I think he's scared of the real world. And so that's why he becomes so obsessed with extracurricular activity because Due to all of his time spent doing the activities, he fails all of his grades at school, and so he's kind of self—he's kind of self-sabotaging his school career because he doesn't want to go up to the next level. He doesn't want to go to high school. He doesn't want to graduate, and he doesn't want to become an adult. Yes and no. I think he doesn't want to become an adult, but he also acts like an adult. You know, he yeah. walks around the school like he's part of the faculty and like addresses teachers with like handshakes and stuff like that. Mm. And he tries to run so many things and he acts like an adult. He has his like ambitions and he and he uh, gets Herman to lend him money for his plans and everything. But then on the counter of that, you have Herman, who's a local millionaire. He has a bad marriage. Uh, his kids hate him. He's kind of almost a strange. He becomes estranged towards the end and. Herman actually acts like a child. They both see themselves in each other, where Herman sees something of himself when he used to have the passion that Max has, whereas Max sees in Herman the success and happy, wealthy life that Herman has, when really Herman's an unhappy person despite being a millionaire. Yeah, he's like a raging alcoholic. And Bill Murray loved the script so much for this film that he offered to star in it for free without a salary. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. But the characters are all hiding from something, you know, Rosemary's hiding from her pain of her husband's death by living in his house creepily and then teaching at the school that he used to go to. And Fun fact, her husband is actually Owen Wilson. And if you look close, there's a shot in her bedroom and there's a photo, a framed photo of Owen Wilson on the table. I didn't even notice yeah. that. And they all kind of hit rock bottom at the same time. But they have to learn to accept themselves in order to grow and then move on. And this is where we see Max's transformation where he starts to accept himself and he starts admitting that his father's a barber and he kind of changes his outfit. He's not he's no longer wearing like the Rushmore suit. He's got like that green suede suit on and he's got mm-hmm. his own style. So he's his own being now. Yeah. And then he goes from trying to destroy Herman to trying to get him back with Rosemary. Because as Herman says... Rosemary is his Rushmore. But because Max gets expelled from Rushmore, he uses Rosemary as his new Rushmore and becomes obsessed with her too in an awkward, weird way. But this is a very fun movie, a lot of great themes as always, and a big favorite of a lot of hardcore Wes Anderson fans. All right, let's move on to The Royal Tenenbaums, which came out in 2001. And this is the film where Wes really hits his stride in terms of his bold style of filmmaking. It's an Oscar-nominated script that he shared with Owen Wilson. Um, the film can actually get kind of dark at times, and like we talked about earlier, it plays out like a book. And the film is about Royal Tenenbaum, played by Gene Hackman and his wife, Ethelene, played by Angelica Houston, had three children, and then they separated. All three of the children are extraordinary prodigies and geniuses. 
Virtually all memory of the brilliance of the young Tenenbaums was subsequently erased by two decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster. Most of this was generally considered by their fa- to be their father's fault. The Royal Tenenbaums is the story of the family's sudden, unexpected return one winter. Yeah, like you said, I think this was Wes Anderson beginning to hit his stride, both with writing and filmmaking, where you see a lot of use of narration, of character description, and the quirky act structure of a Wes Anderson film that we're used to now. In the beginning of the film, we learn all about the Tenenbaums. He goes kind of like character to character. He starts with their childhood, too. And he does it in the most Wes Anderson way possible, narrated by Alec Baldwin. Wes developed a group of highly unique and eclectic characters, all struggling with similar issues, hiding from their pasts. A lot of trauma caused by their father, too. Yeah, it's really funny in the opening when we learn who the kids are, because all three of the kids were extremely successful prodigies. Uh, Chaz was a math genius, and he ran, he created his his own successful business, He's like a marketing whiz. Yeah, and then Margot is a, a playwright, and she got like a grant to write plays f- for a living. And then Richie was a world class tennis player as like a a, a prepubescent kid. However. Now that they're adults, Chaz is hyper-neurotic about everything and aggressively overprotects his boys from the world he finds terrifying. Margot is highly depressed and a secretive chain smoker since the age of 12. And Richie is at, kind of at a loss of what path to take in his life. He's also become an addict. And the latter two also have to address their true feelings for one another. This is the first film where Wes Anderson used his wardrobe to convey the uniqueness of his characters. And it's so funny because when the when the three kids are children, they dress the same as when they're adults. Exactly the same. The exact same outfits. And so he found that this is the first time he found that to have strong wardrobe choices for his characters will really make them memorable. Yeah, and obviously with Richie, his wardrobe changes because his character goes through an immense transformation throughout the film. Yeah. Obviously, spoilers, guys. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, where there's a scene where Richie later on in the film attempts suicide, and throughout the whole film, Richie is wearing sunglasses. He has this long hair and this long beard because he was on like a, a boat trip that lasted like five years exploring the world. Yeah, because he still is at a loss of what to do with his life. He doesn't know what to do, so he just decides to see the world, and he didn't cut his hair or beard. But in the scene where he tries to kill himself, which is iconic scene in in Wes Anderson lore, um, he cuts his beard. He cuts his hair off. And then he has this new look, and you finally get to see his face. And that's kind of like... He stops wearing the sunglasses. Stops wearing the sunglasses. It's the first time he takes his sunglasses off as Luke Wilson. And you finally see, oh, it's Luke Wilson's face. I didn't even barely recognize him throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, he was hiding himself from the world. And then, um, so all of these three, these three people, they were child prodigies, but then their adulthood is just marred by disappointment and a lack of potential. And... For the most part, it's Royal's fault as a as a bad father, and then that he comes into play of when he learns that his ex wife is going to remarry, he decides to fake an illness to try and get back in the good graces of his family. Yeah, but what happens is uh, he gets kicked out of the hotel he'd been living in for the last twenty years, and I think he runs out of money. Yeah, and so he's forced to go back home, and he spends pretty much the whole film playing victim in every scenario. He has ruined. And tries to win over his family's loyalties for all the mistakes he has, but he, it still takes him the entire film to admit his mistakes and accept his mistakes and what he's done to his families. Yeah, and what's really cool about this movie is they shot it all in New York City, 
But because Wes Anderson, like I said, he likes to create this heightened reality where it's not our reality. He purposely filmed the in the city in a way where he never actually showed any landmarks, any discernible landmarks in New York. So, for example, they, they filmed on Ellis Island, but he purposely kept the Statue of Liberty out of the shot because they didn't want anyone to recognize it. So this film is in New York, but we don't even know what city actually takes place in. And the way he films it is to avoid recognizing any landmarks. So it's an amazing way to to show that this could be like a city and in a fantasy, in a story. I think we have to talk about the odd incestual relationship, though, between <laughs> Margot and Richie. It's got to be addressed a little bit because yeah. I know a lot of people think it's weird. But again, we have to remember and be clear that they're not blood relatives. They're related through adoption. So Margot was adopted as a kid into the family. So technically, it's not truly incest. It's a little weird because, you know, they grew up together. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's based on a French film of actual siblings that are having an incestual relationship. But again, they're not blood related. I love Ben Stiller in this movie as Chaz. And I think he has some of the funniest gags in the entire film. Like where we were talking earlier where he's always wearing that red Adidas tracksuit. Mm-hmm. But then at uh, Royal's funeral at the end of the movie, he wears a black <laughs> Adidas tracksuit. <laughs> and then when he's with his sons and they're all shaving their faces with him despite <laughs> them being 8 and 10 years old. It's, it's hysterical. Ben Stiller, he thought that he his character wore a red tracksuit because it made him and his kids more easy to spot in any kind of dangerous situation. You'll be like, oh, there's a giant red track, tracksuit right there. Or if it's like his kids got lost. But Wes Anderson said, I just imagined you in a tracksuit the whole time. So there's nothing behind it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Gene Hackman's awesome as Royal. is a very iconic character in Wes Anderson's world. Mm. Compared to the rest of the cast, it seems that every character besides Royal takes life too seriously, where Royal doesn't take life seriously enough. And it's his own fault because since he never took his family seriously, he created these obsessive personalities within his children. Yeah, and Gene Hackman and Wes Anderson actually did not get along throughout the filming of this movie. And Hackman signed on hoping that it would be a fun and relaxing film to do, but it ended up being more taxing of a role than he expected it to be. And it had been noted multiple times that they fought on set a lot, and Gene Hackman even bullied Anderson on set openly over over disagreements of filming and sets and and like runtime and everything. And leading this, a lot of the female castmates like Gwyneth Paltrow to, to ignoring Hackman on set and Bill Murray even verbally defending Wes on set and coming to his aid in response to Gene. Yeah, I think because Gene Hackman, he's an old school actor, man. And he retired a, a couple of years after this film. And so I'm sure he was not, I'm sure he didn't understand the exactness and the attention to detail that Wes has in his filmmaking. Like we said, where everything needs to be timed perfectly with the cameras and the lights in the sets. And so I'm sure um, he was expecting an easy shoot to just chill and like hang Like a out. fun comedy. Yeah, but I don't think he understood the uh, genius, but also the taxing um, physical production of a Wes Anderson film. And again, this film, the similar theme we talked about earlier, where Wes has children acting like adults and adults acting like children. The three children, plus obviously Eli, played by Owen Wilson, who's the neighbor across the street, who also has the relationship and affair with Margot in their past. Mm. The three of them act like adults when they're kids and they're highly successful prodigies. But then when they're adults, they're all acting like children. And it's ironic. Mm. So this is for, this is Wes Anderson's first ensemble, which will become a common way of storytelling in the future for him, where it wasn't just one or two or three. It wasn't just one or two leads. It was a group of people leading the film. 
with very distinct storylines, each of their own. Yeah, and just one more thing to point out is this is a, a comedy, but again, there are dark moments in it, and it's emotional at times, especially the final scene between Chaz and Royal. This is the relationship that's been most damaged probably by Royal because he stole funds and money from Chaz as a kid, and Chaz is the person who sued Royal and got him disbarred from being a lawyer. So mm. it's an emotional situation after the car crashes and and Royal comes over and brings Chaz a Dalmatian and Chaz accepts the gift and he says, I've had a rough year. And it's just, it's really gets me choked up every time I hear it because now Royal is finally understands what he's done to his family and he's finally connecting with his kids. Yeah. He didn't even know the name of his wife before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, quick fun fact. Danny Glover, Luke Wilson, and Owen Wilson all turned down parts in Ocean's Eleven to appear in this film. Who would the Wilson brothers have played? I bet it would have been Casey Affleck like and, in, and uh, Scott Cairns characters. Maybe, yeah. That's what I sense. would guess. And They probably would have made them brothers. Because they weren't that famous back then. And Danny Glover would have been uh, probably Bernie Mac's role. Oh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I love Casey Affleck and Scott Cairns, though. They're great. Yeah, they're hilarious. <laughs> Moving on to The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou in 2004. This is probably Wes's, like... Least loved film by most people and critics and fans. Um, I like it a lot, though. It's one of those movies that you wouldn't immediately recommend to someone, but you'd still want them to see it, if that makes sense. Mm. It's about renowned oceanographer Steve Zizou, played by Bill Murray, who's sworn vengeance upon the rare shark that devoured a member of his crew. In addition to his regular team, he is joined on his boat by Ned, played by Owen Wilson, a man who believes Zizou is his father, and Jane, a journalist pregnant by a married man. They travel to sea, all too often running into pirates and perhaps more traumatically, various figures from Zizou's past, including his estranged wife, Eleanor. This film, I think, is the beginning of Wes Anderson's use of a strong production design, whereas the sets in this are the most extravagant he's had in a movie yet and add a lot of strength to the movie itself. So I think for this movie, he really, really dove into building big sets for his scenes yeah and this, the concept of this film is hilarious of like just bill murray's this guy yeah. who's just out for revenge against a giant jaguar shark mm. and it's kind of like wes anderson's take on jaws <laughs> a lot of people do feel the story kind of falls kind of short at the end of the film but i like to look at this movie from like you just said a filmmaking perspective yeah and it's a great follow-up to the royal tenenbaums which some can argue is his best movie so it's kind of hard to just come back and top that or even do something better or even match it Life Aquatic can also, like Tenenbaums, be dark at times, dealing with abandonment, death, and depression. And this is, I mean, it's a very silly movie. It could be his silliest movie. Just that the outfits and, and the, the blue the blue uniform with the red knit cap. It's based off uh, Jacques Cousteau, yeah. who is a real explorer. Real explorer. And, but I don't think Bill Murray takes the hat off. Maybe once after like he takes a shower, maybe he has it off in the hallway. Yeah, but just like... And their diving suits and when they're swimming underwater, it's just, it's very whimsical and very fun. Like when they go underwater and they're kind of like very fairy tale-ish, like not real biological pieces of sea life under there. Like the coral reefs and stuff are very, very fantastical. And so he had he had a lot of fun with this, you know what I mean? Yeah, Zizu played by Bill Murray perfectly and hilariously. He's a character who's a dimming star. His career is going downhill. He's a documentarian and... His final adventure hopefully kickstarts him back into the public eye with high, with high esteem and also to give him re revenge. But 
Zizu is kind of just an asshole throughout the entire film. He just kind of seems like an unlikable character, but only Bill Murray can make you like this guy because he's a dick. He doesn't want to accept Ned to be his son, which we found out later on. Spoiler alert, he's not actually his real son. Um, he's a dick to pretty much everyone on the ship, even to um, to Willem Dafoe's character, who's <laughs> hilarious in the film, who's who just is obsessed with just getting the approval of Steve Zizu. <laughs> it's a very similar character to, uh, to Royal Tenenbaum and Herman where it's this uh, flawed father figure character, um, very selfish in their own ways and blinded by their needs and their desires. But like you said, only only Bill Murray can pull this off. And yeah, there are some pretty serious scenes like when he uh, when he attacks the pirates that have taken over the ship and he just like starts shooting it's all like of them. It's like a crazy action yeah. shootout. And there's a hilarious shot where he like kicks in, he walks into a door and there's like the the poker game and Jeff Goldblum gets shot in the chest and then it's just Zizu versus like 12 people who are shooting like AK-47s at him at an open doorway and he doesn't get shot at all he's just standing he's in the got doorway a handgun. it's like shooting with star troopers like they're not gonna touch you I don't know how many bullets he shot with, with just one handgun in this movie it's pretty it's pretty hysterical yeah, he just he, keeps <laughs> firing with it <laughs> and this leads to Steve Zizu eventually is given the chance to destroy the jaguar shark the animal that killed his best friend Esteban and also indirectly Ned. Esteban! <laughs> the son he refused to acknowledge for decades before finally accepting him only moments before his tragic death in the helicopter crash. And rather than killing the shark, he decides to make peace with it and ultimately with himself. Everything he's lost because of his selfish, self-destructive behavior. And even he, there's that hilarious uh, line where he's like, do you think it remembers me? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it will remember me. Yeah. <laughs> And then Wes being Wes, he didn't want to use any CGI or anything. Or anim- in- instead, he used he. They built an actual puppet of the shark, and it was like twelve feet long. And they actually filmed it with a black backdrop to make it look like they were in the sea. And yeah, I love like the the practicality of these fun sets and set pieces, like the submarine when they take it down, and like there's like twelve people inside the submarine. Clearly, they didn't like actually go underwater. It's just like this fun shot of them that's. F- clearly shot inside and they're all just looking outside the window and he just superimposed it on top of the submarine mm. and that yellow submarine for me every time i see it it to me looks like a reference to the beatles and the yellow submarine music video and it i the one in the vi- video honestly looks almost exactly like the one used in the film mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm sure they drew from that for sure so this movie is great but it showed that west was still finding his audience his royal tenenbaums made some money Rushmore made some money, but Life Aquatic was an actual. It was a was a big bomb. It made I think thirty four million dollars in total box office on a budget of fifty. So it was a big loss for the studio. So I think that Wes he got a bigger budget, but it was clear that they were still trying to find the Wes Anderson audience. But all in all, it's a very good film. It's hilarious. If you love Bill Murray, I mean, who doesn't love Bill Murray? He's the he's the lead character in the film, so obviously. It's, I adore it for that reason. But, I mean, if you're a fan of Wes, you'll love it still. Let's move on to The Darjeeling Limited, which came out in 2007, co-written by Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola. The film is about three estranged brothers, Francis, played by Owen Wilson, Peter, played by Adrian Brody, and Jack, played by Jason Schwartzman, who reunite for a train trip across India. The siblings have not spoken in over a year, ever since their father passed away, and Francis is recovering from a motorcycle accident, Peter cannot cope with his wife's pregnancy, and Jack cannot get over his ex-lover. And the brothers fall into old patterns of behavior as Francis 
forces them all onto the spiritual journey to try to reconnect where he finally reveals the real reason for their reunion to visit their mother in the Himalayan convent. This film was about dealing with grief and loss. These three brothers haven't spoken in a year because they are incapable of dealing with the loss of their father and it's estranged them from each other. And they all exhibit certain tendencies and behaviors which show how they're trying to avoid the grief and facing the loss of their father. So for example, Peter, played by Adrian Brody, he wears his father's prescription sunglasses even though they're, they make his vision blurry because he's trying to keep the world out of focus. He doesn't want to see the world and he doesn't want to deal with the world, so he keeps his sight and his vision blurry. Which is in contrast to Richie in Royal Tenenbaums who uses the sunglasses to hide from the world. Yeah, exactly. So Jack, Jason Schwartzman's character, he's a writer, but he the things he writes are pretty much word for word verbatim situations that have happened and, and he's writing a short story about the father's funeral and so he's waiting for like the next chapter to unfold but i look at it as as not that i mean that makes sense thinking about it that way too but he doesn't want to deal with the grief of the loss and so he's fictionalizing what really happened to make it seem like it's not it didn't happen you know what i mean it's like it's not real because i fictionalized it and i wrote it in this story so it's not reality when in fact so he's just trying to not deal with it himself and then francis dealt with the grief by trying to kill himself which we learn eventually later he, they, he disguises as a motorcycle accident but yeah francis's isolation and loneliness post uh his father's death leads him to that attempted suicide and forces him to come up with the idea to get his brothers together. He plans this grand journey with laminated itineraries. And this kind of seems like a way for him just to kind of save himself, not really just fully to get his brothers to connect. You can see this because he's constantly asking his brothers to come to agreements with him to like formalize every <laughs> so interaction. So many agreements. Can we and, agree to that? Yeah. <laughs> can we all agree to this? And it's just his way to, because he needs connection so bad that he literalizes everything. Since they haven't seen each other for so long, they kind of have lost the ability to properly communicate with each other. They're constantly talking over each other and changing subjects and barely paying attention to each other. And Francis is like ordering food for them and telling them what to get and trying to take control of their decisions for them. And again, this was co-written by Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola, who uh, Wes will go on to write more scripts with. And actually, the three of them, while writing this, they lived in different cities, but whenever they were in the same city, they would have their writing sessions. And then once they had a script, they actually took the trip to India to kind of formulate the rest of the film and get it finished authentically. And they kind of ended up like acting out parts of the movie to kind of get the vibe of the of the situations. And like how you were talking earlier about how the brothers have kind of lost their, their means of communicating with each other. They don't really know how to do it anymore. In like the first several scenes with the brothers, when they're together, they're kind of just communicating about themselves and throwing that at their brothers to like talk about themselves. And they're not really looking for opinions back, not too much. And they just want to hear themselves talk. And it's also uh, apparent in that shot inside the train compartments where their three brothers are talking and living in that in that compartment. And there's a mirror and then there's an open window. And, and just like how people often communicate, they're just communicating with themselves even though they're talking to other people which is basically what the brothers do throughout the film until they start to connect actually what's really cool about the train is wes anderson actually filmed this movie on an actual train that was moving on an actual train track and they had to go through several months of negotiations and logistics with the train company but he was adamant about filming it on an actual train and this added to the authenticity of 
feeling the movement of the train and seeing it, and then also the tight quarters of the train and having to film logistically and practically within the the small confines of a train. Yeah, and they had very minimal crew, and the actors were doing basically like their own makeup, and they didn't have trailers or anything, so they weren't like accommodated like actors usually are because actors are generally coddled like crazy <laughs> on movie sets. <laughs> they have very comfortable lives. They're, yeah, they're very they're treated very well, and uh, on this movie, they kind of were just it was just kind of like guerrilla filmmaking in a sense Mm -hmm. and natalie portman even has a role in this that lasts maybe like five seconds but it's actually um tacked on from a short film with uh jason schwartzman's character called hotel chevrolet hotel chevalier um but she actually flew all the way to india and worked for 30 minutes on the movie i think she just stayed there too for like a week and a half or something like that too and then also so with tenenbaums west began his love of creating unique character designs and wardrobes for his characters. So in this film, not so much, but there is the very unique and distinctive look of Owen Wilson's bandaged face and head, which he doesn't even explain to the brothers until like 15 minutes into the movie when they're like, what happened to your face? So that is an iconic look for the movie of Owen Wilson's wrapped up face. And of course, filming in India, and they go to a lot of beautiful locations in West Canada. He, instead of using like, these amazing epic shots of like India, he uses India as like a backdrop to the brothers' lives and like their story because they're still pretty much center frame in all the shots and it's their discourse that carries every scene. And he just has these beautiful backdrops and these beautiful buildings and sets and everything of India. Yeah, and this I think this movie is just a really, really beautiful story about not just grief but death itself. And that's illustrated in the sequence where they come across the three Indian boys who are drowning in that river and each of the brothers goes to save one of the boys and then Peter is the last one out of the river and he says that he didn't save his, the the kid drowned. And then they bring the kids back to the Indian village and they have that really beautiful memorial and funeral of the kid. And so I think this illustrates how people deal with grief because this funeral procession and this ritual was it's beautiful and it's kind of like a celebration of the life of the kid. And even though a horrible thing happened, the villagers are very kind to the brothers and which contrasts with how they have been dealing with the grief of their father, where they've just shut each other out of their lives and have gone down these downward paths in their lives. And so I think the the death of this boy and experiencing the different cultures dealing of grief and loss really helped them all grow as characters in order to take a step to begin to overcome the death of their father. Yeah, and the spiritual process that the Indian villagers go through with the death in their community and with the death of the boy is a very elaborate and, like you said, beautiful process, and it's very respectful, and everyone's kind of grieving together, including the brothers start to grieve as well because they're part of this moment, and it's a way for them to grieve the loss of their father. And what the Indian villagers end up doing is they end up burning the boy's body and then they all bathe in the river to get the boys, the boys' ashes off of their bodies and their clothing. And this is symbolic where they're letting go of their grief to move on, to not let their past and their sadnesses haunt them for the rest of their lives, which is what's happening to the brothers. And the brothers eventually do the same process later on because they've been carrying their father's luggage throughout the whole, the whole movie, all these suitcases and bags. And even Peter's been wearing his father's sunglasses. Those are prescription the sunglasses. Belt. Yeah, and the, he's been... In, in the what? The belt. In the belt. And um, he's even taking headache medication because he's getting headaches from the sunglasses, which are give, which he can't, which are a prescription and he doesn't need a prescription. And 
at the final shot of the film when they're that super slow-mo shot of them running to the other train and they're finally happy and they finally move past their grief and they throw the suitcases away just like the Indian villagers wash the ashes off their bodies. Exactly. And so the the funeral of the boy is the first step and then the second step was being able to accept their mother, their mother's rejection. So we learn they eventually get to their mother and we learn that she works at a convent but we also learn that she's abandoned them in their past as ch- as children, and they go there to try to find some kind of closure, but it doesn't happen. She abandons them again. So when they were younger, the abandonment of, from their mother destroyed them emotionally. But now, after being abandoned by their mother again as adults, it's not that hard of a, of a burden on them this time, and they're able to overcome it pretty quickly because... They've grown as people and as adults, and they've learned how to deal with grief. Yeah, and I wouldn't say the protagonists, the brothers in this film, are like typical Wes Anderson characters. Yes, they're kind of like, you know, the classical whimsy and, and quirky guys in some ways, but they genuinely seem like brothers. They have, this seems like a really intimate film for Wes and mm-hmm. the writers because we just had Royal Tenenbaums before this where it's a big ensemble cast and even Life Aquatic. And here it's really just three main characters and you get to spend a lot of time with them and learn about their character traits and and grow with them and go through this journey with them. And they eventually do have that spiritual journey and they connect and they learn to become brothers again. Yeah, I agree. I think this is probably Wes Anderson's most personal film and it's a really beautiful film about tough themes and we got to see the unique Wes Anderson spin on those themes. Yeah, it's like... Anyone who has siblings or friends and you haven't seen each other for a while and you're somewhat a stranger, you haven't talked in a long time and you get together for the first time in a while and you kind of don't know how to communicate and it feels kind of weird. It's And he does a great job expressing that. Yeah, that awkwardness. But I recommend this film. This is one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. It's really beautiful. I have a poster of it, bro. <laughs> Everyone's like, what movie is that? I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> Want to move on? Let's move on to the fantastic Mr. Fox which came out in 2019, and I love this movie so much. This is a great animated film. So this is his first stop motion film. This film is actually based on a children's book by Roald Dahl, a British novelist, and was the first book that Wes Anderson actually ever owned. And Noah Baumbach actually helped co-write the screenplay with him. And Baumbach's an awesome director. He just did Marriage Story, if you've seen that on Netflix. This movie's hysterical, clever, visually stunning. It's about a fox who breaks a promise to his wife. The fox is played by George Clooney. The wife is Meryl Streep. And raises the farms of their human neighbors, Bogus, Buns, and Bean, giving into his animal instincts and dangers not only his marriage, but also the lives of his family and their animal friends. When the farmers force Mr. Fox and company deep underground, he has to resort to his natural craftiness. This is a, a groundbreaking film, both with animation, but with the sound design of this movie. So typically for an animated film or a stop motion film, the actors record their dialogue in studios with a microphone right in front of their face, then they're in, they're in a soundproof studio. And the audio and dialogue always sounds perfect. And for me, watching animated films, it never, I mean, it, it never feels quite right. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound quite right. Yeah, because Kung Fu Panda, it's a panda on a mountain, but his audio is perfect. Yeah, so for this film, Wes Anderson decided to record the actor's dialogue in environments, in settings that would match the scenes of the movie. So if a, a, if a character is underground speaking, they, he had them go into the basement of a house to record the dialogue, or they went into an attic to record dialogue, and they went to 
into a farmhouse to record dialogue. Or if a, if an animal, if a character is outside, he had his actors record in a forest or out in a field. So you can actually, it sounds like it matches the environment of the scene. And for this, it makes the realism of the stop motion even more realistic and really puts you there. It makes it seem like these are actual real things. And we saw a filmmaker start to do this like specifically with Rango, where they would kind of fi- they would basically film the audio and kind of act it out outside or whatever set they're on. Yeah, so with Rango, they actually filmed the actual movie with the actors, which is really cool. And again, this is a stop motion film, which meticulously took takes a long time to film. And at the same time, there were other stop motion films coming out, like uh, Coraline came out, but. This is different because it doesn't look perfectly smooth like Coraline, those other stop-motion films, because Wes purposely shot this digitally in 12 frames per second so that you know that it's stop-motion graphics and animation. So you, you can tell. And like his other movies, the character, like the camera plays a part as a character. Yeah, so the movement is a little choppy, but he does it on purpose. But also, what I love about this is the materials that they use to make the characters and the sets are actual real materials. He, he was adamant that if there are stones in the shot, they have to be real stones and all the leaves are real leaves and the grass is real grass and the fur of the animals is actual real fox fur. So he used real materials from the earth to create the sets and characters, which gives it a realistic tangibility that you've never seen in a film before. Yeah, and there's just one CGI shot was used... One one scene, and it's the flooding of the Flint Mine. Other than that, every single shot, every prop, every piece of wardrobe character made by hand, used for stop-motion filmmaking. Mm. Even the smoke is real. They use cotton balls for that. And I think <laughs> the fire is pieces of wax candle cut up. Mm, that's funny. And this movie is composed of almost 56,000 shots. And for example, an 18-second clip would take about eight days to make. So this took a long time to make. And the color scheme of this movie is primarily autumn colors, so like a lot of yellows, oranges, browns, um, with virtually no green or blue. However, Christofferson, uh, his blue-colored wardrobe was intentional as as a way to emphasize him being an outsider. Ash is always so jealous of him, and Christofferson is like amazing at everything, and everyone loves him. He doesn't seem to try to do anything. People just gravitate towards him, and it always makes Ash so jealous. Well, a big theme in this film is accepting who you are and accepting your identity. And Ash, no one's, his father doesn't seem to accept Ash for who he is because his father wants him to be like him, like great at sports, a great athlete, um, a great bandit. He wants him to be taller. And Ash is a very short guy, even a short little fox. But his cousin seems to be everything. And even even his gym teacher, is, when he sees um uh, Christopherson play the game. He's like, wow, he really is your father's nephew. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, I think, I think this might be my favorite Wes Anderson movie, and it's freaking hysterical. Like the one-liners in this movie drive me crazy. It's so funny. It's so funny, and I love. Um, so the animals are all—they're very civilized and they're very humanistic in in how they and how they behave. But then also, he shows the animalistic side of them. So, for example, like when. Um, Mr. Fox is about to eat his breakfast. He's very polite to his wife, and they have a nice little conversation. Then he goes to his plate, and he just ravages it like a monster, like an animal would. And then um, there's that argument between him and the other animal, and they start from arguing, and then they start growling at each other. And it's just like he shows like the animal side of them too, which is so fun. Yeah, Mr. Fox, played by George Clooney, is obviously sly like a fox. His personality is eccentric and hysterical. He's always trying to control every situation he's in. 
but he hides his true intentions usually with compliments and the illusion of choices for other characters. For example, multiple times he'll present his wife with a decision like, should we do this or that? But he's already made up the decision of what he's going to do and what he wants to do. So it's really just an illusion that she has a choice in what they're about to go through. And then he masks his slyness with compliments and and will tell her how beautiful she is despite not letting her really have a choice in the decision he's about to make. Yeah, and also he's obsessed with improving his life because he doesn't fully realize that he has everything he needs at home. And which is what drives him to get the new home inside the tree, which he knows is dangerous. And people have told him told him not to move there because it was too dangerous for him to be there. But he want he he's sick of he said he's sick of living in a hole. But his wife loves the hole; it's their home. But he just thinks that things can be better and things should be better because he's not he doesn't fully grasp the idea that his life is full is is full the way it is. Yeah, it kind of links to the ending with the Canis Lupus scene where they throughout the film he talks about the wolf and how he has a phobia for wolves but is is it really he has a phobia for wolf or or he has a phobia of being a wild animal mm. because the wolf doesn't wear clothing the wolf is quiet he doesn't really speak english like the like the animals do and talk and Mr. Fox he is debating with being civilized. He, doesn't, he wants like a new tree, a new home, a house, rather than living in a hole like a fox is supposed to do. And he wears a suit and tie. And he kind of tries to connect to the wolf at the end of the film when he like raises his fist and, and, the, and the wolf raises his fist back. But so like does Mr. Fox really have a phobia of wolves or is it a phobia of being a wild animal and being his true nature? He, by that time in the film, he's finally realized that he needs to be a father more than anything, which he hasn't been. He needs to be a father and a husband. One of my favorite shots in this film is when uh, Ash and Mr. Fox are in the sewer talking, and uh, Ash is staring down. And this is when um, the shot that Stanley Kubrick made famous is the Kubrick stare, and it's like a technique he developed where he will just have like an intimidating or unsettling point of view POV shot of a of a character like just staring basically off into the like almost like directly off camera yeah like think of Jack Torrance in the shining Jack Torrance in the shining and then full metal jacket with the guy uh, in the bathroom and he does that with Christopherson and it just drives me crazy it's fucking hysterical <laughs> for for parents and for kids like there's no other animated film like this because it has the Wes Anderson's tone and style and story and dialogue and I think it's something fun for kids to watch because it's so unique. They can see a new way to tell a story rather than the same old animated Pixar, Disney, DreamWorks movie. They're all pretty much the same. This is wholly unique in a fun experience, I think. Yeah, and again, we're talking about a theme where it's about accepting your identity and who you are, specifically with Ash's character who's not really like a fox and not what he, his, he thinks his father wants out of a son. But he ends up, because of his physical status and his and his traits, he ends up saving the day twice towards the end of the movie mm. because he's little. <laughs> I can fit through I'm there. Little. You know why? Because I'm little. <laughs> and so he ends up saving the day because of who he is, and he accepts who he is. And even Chris Christopherson doesn't even want to be who he is with the athlete and everything. But even Mr. Fox accepts who he is. He's not going to – he finally accepts that, like, I belong in my home and I have to take care of my home. Yeah, and there's an imperfect ending to this film, which again is important because most animated films just have a great, happy Hollywood ending, but it's important for not only kids, but adults to see that it's okay to admit defeat and accept ourselves for who we are 
and not the unrealistic image who we think we want to be or should be. Yeah, sometimes we fail and sometimes we make mistakes. That's part of life. And those themes are reinforced at the end of the film in the supermarket where Mr. Fox gives that toast and he calls all, all the animals around him the five and a half most wonderful wild animals I've ever met. So now they finally accept who they are. Overall, I adore this film. It's hysterical, beautifully filmed, beautifully shot. Um, it's a blast. Great characters, great writing. And it's so fun to see stop motion in such a high quality way and different than like big budget box office stop motion or animated films. Yeah, it's probably one of, if not the most unique animated film you've see, you'll see in the last decade. Let's move on to Moonrise Kingdom, which came out in 2012. The year is 1965, and the residents of an island off the coast of New England inhabit a community that seems untouched by some of the bad things going on in the rest of the world. 12-year-old Sam, played by newcomer Jared Gilman, and Susie, played by newcomer Kara Hayward, have fallen in love and decide to run away, but a violent storm is approaching the island, forcing a group of quirky adults played by Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, and Bill Murray to mobilize a search party and find the youths before calamity strikes. And this was co-written by Roman Coppola again. So this is Wes Anderson's take on both growing out of adolescence and also discovering love for the first time and having a connection, an emotional and intimate connection with another person for the first time. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom, I think, is it's a very common favorite film of Wes Anderson fans when you talk to them. It's far more than just a movie about childhood, like you just said. It's about growing through childhood and into adolescence and into adulthood even. And Anderson paints this chaotic image of the adult characters caught up in their own inhibitions and failures, which contrasts again with the children's. And we're talking about those themes where the children act like adults and the adults act like children. The Susie and Sam characters, they're very mature for their ages. And they even have this plan to just run away because they want to get away from everyone because their parents are in horrible, like toxic relationships, dysfunctional family, and again, they're childish people and they want to get away from them. Yeah. And then with Moonrise Kingdom, I think that this is the film where Wes Anderson's trademark style as a whole, so every aspect of his style, from the camera work to the set design and the wardrobe and the writing, everything had finally become fully formed in this film. I think this is him hitting the Wes Anderson pinnacle of what it was as a film. Yeah, this was universally adored when it hit theaters. A lot of people really went out and saw this movie. Yeah, and so I think this is his... He finally solidified his voice as an artist with this movie. And we have a new big A-lister into the Wes Anderson world with Bruce Willis entering Wes Anderson movies. He ends up being one of the best characters of the films, and Bruce is naturally a funny guy, so it's awesome to see him in like a great comedy like this because he's funny in a lot of his action movies, but again, he kind of plays like a a hero and a cop, but not like a big-budget action hero like he usually plays. Yeah, and then this film, I think, has probably the most heavy use of insert shots than any of his other films especially with uh, Sam and Susie with their pen pals' letters back and forth to each other, which is one of my favorite sequences of the film, where it's like, Dear Susie, blah, 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 blah. Dear Sam, blah, blah. Dear Susie, when? Dear Sam, where? <laughs> yeah, it's great because a lot of you, you younger kids don't understand. We used to literally write letters to people, and the fun thing about it was it took so much time just to get like one response to something because you yeah. had to write it out. You had to send it in the mail. You had to wait for them to get it. You had to wait for them to write out their response. 
them put it in the mail, then you pick it up just to get a one like sentence remark or like a response. But Wes does it in a really funny way where it's just one word questions, one yeah. word responses, and he does it in quick cuts. So it's almost like these very formal text messages that they're sending back and forth. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And he also used for the first time. So yeah, he's used narration before, but for this film, he he broke the fourth wall for the first time, having that character narrate this the the film speaking directly into the camera, speaking to the audience in several scenes. And there's actually a scene, a moment where it's a, it's nighttime and he's on the beach and there's a light shining on him and then he finishes his narration and then he actually turns the light off on camera. Oh, yeah. It's really funny. In this film, again, in a lot of his films, dysfunctional families, which you can't help but think, does this... Did this happen to him as a kid with his parents and maybe treating him with neglect? Because the accepting of responsibility is prevalent throughout the film with the adults. And Susie's parents borderline neglect her and she constantly fights with her mother. And her father acts like he wishes he wasn't a father. Sam's guardians give up their parental responsibilities to Sam for all the trouble he's caused. And this movie brings up kind of this philosophical debate where do do children owe their parents a debt? For parents clothing, feeding, raising them, protecting them with a house and putting a roof over the head? Or do parents owe their children a debt and responsibility for bringing them into the world when they had no control of being born? You know, no child chooses to be born. So is there a moral contract between a parent and a child? But really, successful families are held together by love, not by moral contracts. What's interesting about this movie is this is his first period piece. And then after this, he made Grand Budapest, the French Dispatch, also a period piece. So I think this is Wes discovered with Moonrise Kingdom. I think that period pieces are where he's going to be making his films from now on. I doubt, I highly doubt that Wes Anderson will make a contemporary film again. I can see that because he he loves typewriters, bro. Same thing with with Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't see Paul Thomas Anderson making a contemporary film again and probably Tarantino as well. So I think with Moonrise Kingdom, he fell in love with being able to not just create this fantastical version of our reality, but also to set it into a, in a time period of the past. And I think he really excelled at it in this film. And so that's why I think Budapest and all of his films from now on will probably be period pieces. I can agree with that. Yeah. And the entire plot of this film basically rides on the shoulders of this new young relationship between these two kids. And like if Life Aquatic, like I said, is, is Wes Anderson's take on like Jaws, this is Wes Anderson's take on like Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and the romance between Sam and Susie's, it's incredibly endearing. It's powerful. And it's kind of like so strong that it's like out of the control of the kids' hands and the, the parents are even blown away by how much they care for each other and the, the, the lengths they go to be with each other. Yeah. And Susie is this very passionate and raw person. She's angry with everybody. She gets in the fights at school. And she escapes her reality with her fantasy books. And when those don't become enough for her, I think that's why she decides to run away with Sam. And it's ironic that despite Susie being the one with a family, she has the emotional and social problems. Like she finds that book... <laughs> like yeah. the French words, like <laughs> how to talk to like your troubled your kid. kid. Yeah, <laughs> but really, and like it's ironic because she has parents, but Sam seems like an emotionally sound kid, but he was an orphan. This movie becomes extremely fun when these two finally hatch their plan and escape together, and it's this fun sequence where they're traveling together and like they're a couple now. 
they've they've left they've left their lives behind and, and now they're like gonna be together forever which is kind of how kids think especially when kids like get their first boyfriend or girlfriend it's like oh we're gonna be together forever we're in love but you barely even know each other yeah and then they deal with the hurricane i think that the impending hurricane is a metaphor for the transition from adolescence to adulthood because sam and Susie go through this intense transformation like they get married and everything and due to the life experiences, they now act even more like adults, but they're forced to be separated. And although Susie, like, hates her mother for the secret affair she has with Bruce Willis' character in the beginning of the film, she ends up having, like, a secret affair with Sam that they keep hidden throughout the rest of the, the remaining of the film. Yeah. The hurricane, I agree with you, but in a different way because what happens is after the hurricane takes place, it actually erases the beach where they had, like, their little getaway from the from the physicality of the island so it's it becomes washed up and i think maybe that beach was their childhood and now it's gone because of the hurricane yeah and this film like you it it does have a happy ending to a sense hmm. but it's not a completely happy ending of course if you've seen it sam ends up being taken in by Bruce Willis's character, he takes him in, in and adopts him and accepts responsibility for him. Which yeah, is, and he has his own little police uniform. Yeah, it's hysterical. <laughs> and then, and then Susie's back home with her with her mother and her father and her family. But at the very last shot of the movie, she like gives a smile, but it's not really like a full wide smile. She just kind of like accepts her life now. Overall, it's a beautifully shot film. It's hysterical. Great performances all around. Edward Norton's great in this movie as as the Matt scout Scott. leader. Yeah. Um, Frances McDormand plays uh, Susie's mother she's great in it too but all around everybody's great in this movie it's a super fun movie to watch if you've never seen it before and what I think really helped Wes Anderson with this movie was the small scale of it because he had done some bigger movies before this and he went from the and he did the animated films which are big productions in, on themselves and it's really fun to think that with this film his movies had started making good money so he could get budgets but this film, he only got a budget of $6 million, which is actually less money than he had for Bottle Rocket. So imagine putting these two movies up against each other. Just the production of Moonrise Kingdom looks like it's $50 million compared to Bottle Rocket. You Absolutely, know what I mean? Yeah. So because he learned so much from his previous films and he has finally developed his style in a, in a fully formed manner, he's able to do so much with so little money. There are a few things about this film and a lot of Wes Anderson's films that people criticize, specifically with Moonrise. People criticize his repetitive nature that he kind of incidentally uses, like the yellow tent, which is obviously in Royal Tenenbaums and everything. And the thing with Wes and um, a lot of unique filmmakers is I don't think they really care if they repeat themselves or if there are connections between their movies because if you think about it, like a, a director as unique in a tour like Wes his collection of films, again, they're not for everybody. They're their own universe, their own world. It's like if it was in a library, he'd have his own little shelf, and it would just be Wes Anderson films. Yeah. A lot of authors are like that. I mean, it's like Dr. Seuss, basically, with books, where no one makes books like Dr. Seuss. And he has that unique vibe, and they're all very similar, but it's the same thing with movies. And I think people are a little overly critical of Wes Anderson for things like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are things that are redundant in his films in a way, but I don't think it's a weakness I enjoy I enjoy those things because I've come to expect expect them because I love them so much. I love the quirkiness. I love the weird dialogue. I love the set design. And I, I, I love the, the, the fairy tale quality of his films. And so I actually look for the Wes Andersonisms 
I want to see the things. I want to see the insert shots. So I enjoy, I actually, I don't think it's a, a hindrance. I, those are one of the highlights of going to Wes Anderson movie. All right, moving on to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which was made in 2014. In the 1930s, the Grand Budapest Hotel was a popular European ski resort presided over by concierge Gustav H., played by Ray Fiennes. Zero, a junior lobby boy, becomes Gustav's friend and protege. Gustav prides himself on providing first-class service to the hotel's guests, including satisfying the sexual needs of many elderly women who stay there. <laughs> it's just funny to read. <laughs> when one of Gustav's lovers dies mysteriously, Gustav finds himself the recipient of a priceless painting and the chief suspect in her murder. And this film was nominated for nine Oscars and won four Academy Awards, including costume design, makeup and hairstyling, original score, and production design. So Grand Budapest Hotel is the pinnacle of Wes Anderson filmmaking. So he hit his, like I said, he hit his stride with Moonrise Kingdom. His style had finally become fully formed and complete. But like we mentioned, the budget for Moonrise was only $6 million. With Grand Budapest, he got a big budget. And you got to see what that money can do for someone like Wes Anderson, where he created this incredible world of Grand Budapest. And because of his unique filmmaking style, it was Exact, it was exaggerated on a massive scale due to the ability to do whatever he wanted thanks to the money. Yeah, I think this is Wes Anderson's best movie in his entire career. Every aspect of his filmmaking is at peak level for Grand Budapest. The writing is wonderful. The script is superb. It's colorful, hilarious. It's wrapped in mystery and has a warm ending. Of all of his films, this is probably a perfect movie, or at least as close to a perfect movie as Wes Anderson's gotten. And the structure of the film is pretty interesting, it's, as it takes place in memories and flashbacks of multiple people. It starts with the girl at the cemetery reflecting on the statue of the writer, and then we're suddenly with the writer at an old age near the end of his death writing, and he's reflect, reflecting back and recounting his memories as a young writer who meets an old Zero, Mustafa, who recounts his memories as a young Zero, and his adventures with the wonderful Gustav. So it's like a bunch. It's like Inception with it's memories. A memory within a memory within a memory. Yeah, it's kind of fun. And in the structure of the film, we talked about it earlier. You said where the aspect ratio and the filmmaking, the film used, changes depending on the storyline. And so for the for the aspect ratio, he he determined it based on what was popular popularly used for films at that time in American cinema. And so the aspect ratio changed to match that. So with the with the square one one aspect ratio, that's because it was set in the 1930s, which was a silent film era, and then the the widescreen anamorphic, that's because it was set in the 1970s, and then the final aspect ratio, which is like a traditional aspect ratio that we see now, is because it was set I think in the 90s. And Gustav, played by Ray Fiennes, is easily the best part of this movie. Rafe is such a talented actor, and everybody, it's pronounced Rafe, even though there's an L in there. We've had a couple people call us off for this. It's pronounced Rafe Fiennes. Um, I think it's because he's he's from Wales. He's Welsh. He's from England, but he has Welsh descent. His name is a Welsh name. And uh, he's played so many iconic characters in his career, like Voldemort, and a lot of them are very serious and yeah, dark English villains. English patient, yeah. And um, it's really refreshing to see Rafe in a flamboyant and fun and humorful role like Gustav. I think this is this could possibly be my favorite Ray Fiennes performance because he's so funny 
and memorable. And I think Gustav is one of Wes Anderson's best characters in his entire filmography, if not the best character, because the film only works because Gustav and Ray Fiennes' performance is so strong. I honestly could not imagine another person playing this role to the effect of him. Absolutely Ma- even, not. even great actors, I couldn't imagine someone else because he just has this amazing quality to be both astute and articulate, but kind of grotesque and, and extremely masculine and a little toxic, but also very polite and funny, but also harsh. And he balances like so many contradictions of, 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 a, of behavior in, in a refined palette. And it's it's an amazing performance, and he was I think he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor. Yeah, he's constantly back and forth between eloquence and and vulgar. Yeah, and it's hysterical. And Gustav is a concierge of the highest quality, whose service and happiness of his guests are his highest priority. And he's teaching Zero in his very fine art of accommodation. Gustav is also an intimate lover and basically kind of like a gigolo of elderly, wealthy woman, <laughs> specifically with blonde hair. And he builds their trust later in in the later parts of their lives, leading Madam, played by Tilda Swinton, who put on like I think it was like five hours of makeup just to play yeah. this role. And he's like, I think the most expensive makeup he's ever hired for the film. Yeah. Uh, she leaves Gustav a priceless painting, Boy, Boy with, with Apple, Apple. <laughs> in her will. <laughs> and this Can't sets- you see the resemblance? <laughs> And this sets off a series of dramatic and hysterical events accounting the dispute between Gustav and the family who want the painting to be taken from Gustav. Yeah. Kept for themselves. Yeah. And then we are introduced to two great characters played by Adrian Brody and then Willem Dafoe who end up being the villains of the film. And like I said earlier where Wes Anderson in his later films began matching the production design and set design with the wardrobe of his characters. This is most prevalent in Grand Budapest where, where for example, Gustav's purple uniform is shown in the production design of the actual hotel where the hotel is variations of hues of pink and purple and red. And for in another set in the hotel is the, the bright red elevator which matches perfectly with Tilda Swinton's red dress in that scene. Dimitri and, and Jopling both wear outfits with black, and the sets of Dimitri's home is mostly very dark blacks and browns. And the same thing of with the author's character of Jude Law, where he wears gray and brown suits. The hotel during the 70s, the environment and set of the hotel, there's lots of wood, there's lots of greens and browns in, in the set design. So with this film, he is beginning to match his characters with the environments and sets and again, we have a, a, a lovely adolescent relationship in this film with between Zero and Agatha. It reminds me a lot of the romance in Moonrise Kingdom, but a little more mature because they're a little bit older and are young adults, so they take their intimacy to an adult level. Whenever they're on camera together, you can't help but feel like warmth in your heart, and it's just adorable whenever they're together in the innocence of Zero and Agatha, and they've committed to each other without hesitation. They'll do anything for each other, and... um. Tony Revolori is phenomenal as Zero, and I think this is his first movie he's ever been in. Mm. And Saoirse Ronan's a delight as Agatha. Yeah, Saoirse is one of the is probably the best actor of her age and generation, and it was great to see her in a Wes Anderson film. And I'm sure they'll work together again. And then this film is absolutely stacked with actors. the The Wes Anderson usual suspects plus Saoirse Ronan and a few others, and it's just 
And Harvey Keitel kind of has Ke- a cameo as like a prison guy. Harvey Keitel is in it. It's just like an unbelievable cast because everyone wants to work with Wes. And the dialogue in this film is, again, it's very sophisticated because obviously you have the eloquent uh, Gustav talking all the time. Plus the writer's very eloquent. Zero becomes an eloquent person when he's older. So it's a, it's a very sophisticated dialogue, but it's also silly and full of a ton of perfectly timed curse words. Yeah, and it's. I think it might be Wes Anderson making fun of himself, and it might. It could be a play with the critics of his, where Gustav will sometimes go on these very pretentious, eloquent rants, and then he'll just cut himself off and say something vulgar. Like uh, on the train, he says that beautiful. He starts speaking in a beautiful manner about life, and then he just stops and he goes, "Oh fuck it." <laughs> so I think it's just him like poking fun at himself in a way of what's really cool is that they, they had a, a pretty large budget in terms of a normal Wes Anderson film for this, but he still found ways to shoot scenes that would have been impossible because they still didn't have the funding to do certain things. Now, for example, one of the train sequences, the first one where the train stops and there's that small outfit of soldiers that eventually come on the train. They didn't shoot that on an actual train. What they did was they built a really small set of the train cart with the table and the two seats. And that's all it was. It was like this small cart. It must have been like five or six feet wide. And they put this on a dolly track. And then they put the actors on the cart. And then they had just a a few crew members pushing the cart on the dolly track to give the effect that they were actually on a train. Because they couldn't afford the train that day. That'll be good. So it's an amazing way that Wes Anderson finds really inventive and simple ways to shoot scenes that could be impossible to film. And Wes actually challenges the audience in this film with several acts of violence, again, goofy violence, but also multiple murders. There there are a couple killings in this movie and a couple gory ones too, which you don't usually see in a Wes Anderson movie. Like there's a scene where the soldiers are fighting and they're all looking down and one literally you just see him get stabbed in the chest. Yeah. And then Gustav gives a a hilarious one-liner. Oh, he's like, I guess you call that a draw because they both die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The violence of this is like, that's a very gory scene. It can be intense. And and especially when uh, Goldblum gets his fingers chopped off. I think Anderson finally got a taste for violence, but he does it in a very Wes Anderson way yeah. where it's fun, it's but also funny. also kind of like off-putting at the same time. Yeah. But this is by far Wes Anderson's highest grossing film. It ended up making $180 million worldwide, which blew all of his other films out of the water. And I just love Gustav, especially like you mentioned, his love of older, very old women. There's that scene where he's talking about um, Lady Madam and... He says, she was dynamite and sack, by the way. And then Zero's like, she was 84. <laughs> and then Gustav's like, I've had older. <laughs> He's like, he says, like, when you, when you get older, you, you start to enjoy the cheaper cuts. <laughs> He's like, I enjoy that. It's more flavorful. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is the irony with the painting, Boy with Apple, is throughout the different periods of time that the film takes place, the painting appears in various locations throughout the hotel and is even hanging behind the front desk at a point during young writer's discourse with Zero, the old Zero. And like the old Zero Mustafa even has to like straighten it out because Schwartzman is just a horrible bellboy. Mm, really funny. But it's just chilling right behind them and it's a priceless painting. And I love when they steal it, they replace the the uh, boy with Apple with a, a, a painting of, uh, it's called Two Lesbians Masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, beautifully shot film. Again, it's probably Wes Anderson's best movie. If it's not your favorite, you can't deny filmmaking-wise, it's probably his best movie, and it's a blast every time you watch it. Yeah, and th- Alexander Desplat's score is phenomenal in this movie. It's so good. Yeah, this is my favorite Wes Anderson film, and this is a moment where he's just firing on all cylinders, and it's amazing to behold. Next up, we got Isle of Dogs, which came out in 2018. This is another stop-motion feature by Wes Anderson. The film is about when, by executive decree, all canine pets of Megasaki City are exiled to a vast garbage dump called Trash Island. 12-year-old Atari sets off alone in a miniature junior turboprop plane and flies across the river in search of his bodyguard dog spots. There, with the assistance of a pack of newly found mongrel friends, he begins an epic journey that will decide the fate of the future of the entire canine population. This is a really beautiful film and i think its main theme is the need for proper communication in order to properly empathize and accept other people so this film is set in japan yet the dogs speak english and the reason for that is it puts us into the perspective of a dog where a dog doesn't understand what we're saying to them but through a connection, an emotional and personal connection, a dog can begin to understand what you're saying, not through your language, but through your feelings and your emotions and your actions. Yeah, so that's why he doesn't have subtitles for Atari or any of the Japanese characters when they're speaking in Japanese. Mm. Because, again, he wants to, like you said, put you in the perspective of a dog. And also, you can non-verbally communicate with people, and you kind of understand basically what Atari's saying every time he's in a scene talking to the dogs or talking to somebody. But it takes empathy to be able to properly communicate. Exactly. And Wes actually makes a hilarious caption where he says, all barks are dubbed into English. <laughs> <laughs> but also, again, he's, he's clever enough that he trusts his audience to be able to interpret what's happening in the film if they don't understand the dialogue that's being said. Yeah. And in terms of empathy towards the dogs or empathy towards characters, that's, I think, the point of Tracy, the character that's voiced by Greta Gerwig, uh, who also did the French dubbing because she's fluent in French, because Tracy speaks English, and her character isn't there to communicate with the audience. Her character is there as a metaphor of, like you just said, empathy for the dogs because she speaks the language of the dogs, and she's the only one in Megasaki that speaks the language of the dogs, and she's able to communicate the empathy that she needs them to feel for the dogs who are stuck and trapped on Garbage Island. Yeah, so essentially it's about we cannot form empathy for other people if we don't learn to communicate with one another. The reason why Atari unlike anyone else in Japan, is the only person to go to the Isle of Dogs to get his dog back is because he was able to actually communicate with him. And through the communication, he empathized and grew to love his dog. So that's why he's the only person that ever attempted to go to the Isle. I think Wes Anderson took his motion capture filmmaking to a new level on this one because Fantastic Mr. Fox is great, obviously. But there are some shots in this film with immense sets and a lot of characters, like the speech that the mayor um, Kobayashi gives, mm. 
it's an audience full of actual miniature puppets and everything, and they're all moving intricately in their own ways, and I can only imagine how long that took to film scenes like that. Yeah, and there are also several amazing bird's-eye view overhead shots of these huge environments with the characters walking, and it makes it feel like for a moment, like, is this like a, a real movie? It's like, you, it kind of really pulls you into the animation. This is also the longest stop-motion movie of all time. It took more than 30 animators almost a year and a half to create the film, and the world building on this movie is immense. Again, we're talking about these enormous sets, tons of characters, and a contrast to basically the entire filmography of Wes Anderson post-Rushmore, starting with Tenenbaums, where he has, we talked about multiple times, about these beautiful color palettes and very vibrant, saturated colors. This film is full of blacks and grays and whites, and it's kind of got it's a... It's kind of grim. It's got a grim undertone to the entire yeah. theme of the film. It's very stark and grim. I, but there's also a, a lot of comedy. Like my favorite scene is probably the scene between the two rival gangs of dogs when that bag when they find that bag and they're about to like kill each other over the bag. But then they're like, "Wait, shouldn't we figure out what's in the bag first and see if it's worth fighting over?" And then they look inside the bag and they're like, "Okay, we're gonna fight over it." And then yeah. they start going crazy <laughs> on each other. Well, it's just like what we talked about earlier with Rushmore, <laughs> where Wes puts in these weird moments of formality and politeness where yeah. it otherwise wouldn't like belong there at all. Yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of overlying themes in this film, including corruption, xenophobia, as well as government control of populations with the use of fear and propaganda like Kobayashi. Because basically what Kobayashi does is he makes up this canine flu and these canine diseases in order to send these get in order for an excuse to send these dogs all the way to Garbage Island. But what what's really happening is this is all an evil plan of revenge dating back centuries to the Kobayashi clan who were betrayed by dogs or ha- were wronged by dogs. Yeah, they even the government even builds like the giant robotic dogs as weapons. And basically the movie follows a group of scrappy dogs 6 months after they've been on Trash Garbage Island who helped the boy Atari after he crashes his island, his plane onto the island to search for his dog Spot. And the dogs all agree to help except for the one dog played by Brian Cranston, who is chief, and he's like the leader of the pack. And um, before the island chief was a stray dog, so he never really has had trust in humans. Um, even in Atari, he doesn't agree to help Atari until later on the film, but all the other dogs do so they stick together. And the interesting thing about Chief is later on throughout the film, once they help Atari find Spot, and so Chief he's uh, just a, a dog that's basically like covered in dirt throughout the beginning of the film, and then he then he gets a shower and a shampoo, and we find out that he's actually white and spotted, just like Spot, and then they're actually brothers. Yeah, they're long lost brothers. Also, another fun fact is Isle of Dogs. I'm sure a lot of people realize this is also sounds like I love dogs. I love dogs. I love dogs. I love dogs. I like turtles. I like turtles. <laughs> <laughs> this film is a, a really beautiful film about the importance of communicating to, to form acceptance and empathy for other people, which is something that can be lacking nowadays. We're obviously going to tell you to go watch this movie if you haven't seen it yet. It's a really fun time. It's super interesting. A lot of great characters. If you love dogs, you're going to adore this film. <laughs> they even had viewings where you could bring your dog along to the viewing. I love dogs. <laughs> I love dogs. And so that's the last movie in Wes Anderson's filmography so far. Um, hopefully, French Dispatch doesn't get pushed back any further because it was supposed to come out in October, but it got pushed back uh, until May 2021. So unfortunately, we have to wait until next year to see that film. But he's also planning on shooting, starting 
production on his next film after that, which is supposed to be set in Rome. So the guy has a ton of ideas, and I can't wait to see what more he comes up with. Yeah, he's Wes is one of my favorite filmmakers working today, and you know when you go see a Wes Anderson movie, it's going to be something special and unique and like nothing you've ever seen before. And I look forward to seeing French Dispatch and whatever he comes out with next because the magic of a Wes Anderson movie is unlike anything else. And you can guarantee that Bill Murray's going to fucking be in it. <laughs> 100%. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning into this episode 25 of Raiders of the Lost podcast. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're here. Leave a comment, like uh, like the video, follow us on Patreon, become a supporter of us monthly, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts today. Tell your movie friends about us. That's how we're growing, word of mouth mostly. We don't have a freaking budget at all, so help us get the word out for the show. Follow the TikTok, follow the Instagram, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We love you all so much for all the support. Hope you enjoyed this episode on Wes Anderson. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Bye.